you will have heard people talking about how community-minded Japanese people are or how group-oriented people are in Japan. And if you put down roots in Japan and like I have with building a house and having my own home in a neighborhood, then you will have to think about how your actions affect the people who live around you. Considering how your actions affect people around you is definitely something I've developed over the years here. Not perfectly, that's for sure. I still get it wrong all the time. But yeah, so that muscle is a lot stronger than it was before, that's for sure. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Business Success Japan podcast. This is your host, Lydia Buechelman. This podcast is made for those who want to develop or strengthen the communication skills, cultural savvy, insights into current trends and conditions, and mindsets that are essential in a Japanese business environment. The helpful, practical suggestions and engaging insights offered here provide listeners with the in-depth cultural context to achieve their own version of success while collaborating with Japanese counterparts. Today, I get to share a conversation that I had with Jane Nakata. Jane is the creator of Pod Launch with Jane, which helps podcasters around the world to launch and run their own show. She is also the award-winning host of the number one podcast for international women living in Japan, Transformations with Jane. Originally from New Zealand, Jane has lived in Fukushima, Japan for nearly 20 years. Because of this, she has a wealth of experience for anyone hoping to live, work, start a business, or raise a family in Japan. But we'll hear much more about this in Jane's own words later on in the episode, so be sure to stick around to learn more. Hi everyone, my name is Jane Nakata. I'm the host of the Transformations with Jane podcast, which is a podcast for foreign women who live in Japan. I also am the CEO of Pod Launch with Jane, which helps people to launch their own podcasts or to, helps people to keep their podcasts going because there's quite a lot of work involved in podcasting, as I'm sure you know, Lydia, having your own podcast. So that's what I do. I came to Japan 20 years ago this year as an English teacher, working for an Eikaiwa, which is a English school and I was an instructor and I was planning to be here for two years but I met the man who would become my husband a few months after I arrived and 20 years later I'm still here. I still live in Fukushima prefecture which is the very first place I came to when I arrived in Japan and I was here through the disaster that we had almost, uh, it will be 11 years by the time this podcast comes out. And yeah, and I'm still here after all of that here in Fukushima. So I really love living in Japan. And I'm really happy to be here on the show with you today and talk a little bit about that. So apart from obviously finding your partner in Japan, what were some other things that led you to decide to settle down in Japan long term? I found that my personality really suited life in Japan quite well. And by that, I mean that I like that things happen on time here and that people respect your time, that if you make an effort to show up on time, which means one or two minutes before something starts, they will also be there one or two minutes before something starts, that sort of thing. I really liked. I like the safety aspect that I don't need to worry about my personal safety so much, but also just in general of your property, all of that is really great. My kids can walk to school by themselves and come home again by themselves. It's really, it really is very nice to be able to live somewhere like that. And I got the feeling about that from, you know, even before I was married or before I had children uh, as well. So yeah, that's some of the things that I came to be interested in. I came to Japan as someone interested in the Japanese language. That was the thing that brought me here at first. I know some people come for manga or come for bonsai or whatever it is that, you know, karate or whatever it is that you like. I came for Japanese language. And when I got here, I realized, oh, there's a lot more to learn. And I'm just really just starting here. Even though I'd already studied it for six years in my own country, I yeah, I sort of realized, okay, <laughs> you don't know much at all. So yeah, there was a lot to learn. And I was really keen to conquer my goal, which was 
be able to speak Japanese fluently. That was the goal that I had when I came. 20 years later, I'm pretty good, but <laughs> I've learned that fluently, well, what does that even mean? I can speak pretty fluently on parenting issues, building a house, could do that in Japanese. I can't do other things in Japanese though, but yes. <laughs> Not everyone can build a house in Japanese, so that's very right. impressive. I know all the words that you need to know when you're building a house in Japanese, like insulation or exterior cladding, <laughs> those kind of words. <laughs> I'll never forget them. Yeah, the, it's quite funny how you can learn a language on the ground here just by repetition. Yeah. And the issue of fluency is a very thorny one in my experience mm, as well. Mm, what is fluency? Mm. I can do certain things. I can't do other things. If you show me a random article, probably understand. But does that mean I'm fluent? Not sure. Yeah. And I, I noticed that People who don't speak another language will use that word. Oh, she's fluent in Japanese. I'm like, okay, yes, I am. <laughs> in reality, maybe not. But yeah, if you speak Japanese, you'll know what we mean by, yeah, it's, are they fluent? If they're fluent, that means, yeah, they they know a lot more than what potentially we can learn in just 20 years of studying the language. 26 in my case, yeah. Right. People who haven't learned another language seem to assume that fluent means native level but that's just not the case there's a big no. gap between yeah, what you need to be considered fluent versus being native level so why did you get interested in the Japanese language in the first place especially as a English speaker it's definitely one of the hardest ones to could have chosen yes well when I was a junior high school student so sort of 12 13 years old in a very rural area of New Zealand which actually has a lot of Japanese visitors come to that area for our beautiful nature. They would come for hiking. And so the principal of my school at the time decided that it would be a good idea to have all the students learn Japanese because we needed a Japanese speaking workforce in our town to deal with all of these Japanese customers who were coming uh, from Japan to, to hike and whatnot. So as a 12-year-old, 12, 13-year-old, this was my first chance to learn a foreign language. And I love languages in general. And so I thought, well, of course I'm going to learn to speak Japanese. And I really loved it. I really got into it. I was so interested to learn how to write this different kind of alphabet that has all these mysterious characters. And I can write this message and my parents can't read it. And this is really exciting. That's how I got interested in it. And my teacher, who actually came from Japan to teach us. We didn't have a local New Zealand person teaching us uh, Japanese. It was someone who'd come from Japan, was really, really lovely. And so he noticed my interest and really helped me to excel in Japanese and pushed me to study harder. And he always, always told me, oh, you have to go to Japan. You have to go to Japan. But at that time, it was extremely expensive to go to Japan. There was no way my family could afford to send me to Japan on exchange. Even just the cost of the flight was too much. So we always had this dream of, oh, somehow get to Japan, perhaps when on your own money when you graduate university. So it took to, you know, after I graduated from university to be able to get to Japan and so I decided to come over as an English teacher and tick off that box of learning to speak Japanese fluently. And I was actually reunited with my Japanese teacher a couple of years ago because I lost track of him after he left New Zealand. And I didn't know where he'd gone or what he was doing, but I really wanted to get back in touch with him and tell him, oh, look, what our, you know, you, you as a teacher has created, you know, look at me now uh, after all of this time and I wasn't able to find him. So we got in touch with a Japanese TV show that helps people to get reunited and they helped us find him. He actually lives in Hokkaido now. And yeah, we got to go and see him and it was really lovely. It's wonderful that you got to have that full circle experience and you got to have a television show help you make it happen. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I got to introduce him to my husband and my two children and he was just blown away that you know, the effect of teaching Japanese to someone can have on the trajectory of their life, right? Yeah, you never know where people you interact with will end up and what it has to do with you and what you've done for them. So that's great. So what was your experience like starting out at an A kaiwa? 
Is that something you would recommend to people or do you have any advice for people who are thinking about it? Eikaiwa is, there are lots of different kinds of eikaiwa, but I was working at one of the biggest chains in Japan and that was very well organized. And I really appreciated that uh, just arriving off the plane and not knowing where to go, what to do. And they teach you a very standard way of teaching lessons. So a not very nice way to say it was be the McDonald's of English language teaching. But if you're here to enjoy Japan and you want to have a job where you don't have to be always thinking about, oh, how am I going to do this or how am I going to do that, then that's all provided for you, then teaching in one of the big chain schools could really work for you. And it gives you a lot of time for your own activities in the morning, for example, because you're going to be working in the afternoons, evenings, and on weekends. So if you have a hobby that you've come here to follow, like maybe you want to train in karate or do ikebana or whatever it is that you're here for that's you want to spend time doing, working in Eikaiwa can be quite a good way to do that, give you uh, time to do your own kinds of things that potentially you might not get working as an ALT, for example, where you're expected to be on the ground, you know, in the classroom on these times or in the school and all these things. So yeah, that's, that's something, but yeah, be aware that uh, Eikaiwa can be very prescriptive kind of work. And some people find that really stifling as well. It's, you don't get to use your creativity and you're expected to be extremely professional. So you're not just showing up to hang out with the students and chat. You are expected to act like a business professional and show up wearing a suit and tie every day and on time and your lessons will finish before the bell goes, all this sort of thing. So if that's not you, then there may be something better for you in Japan rather than working at one of the big chains, even if the salary is kind of a little bit more attractive at the, some of the bigger chain schools, I think. Yeah. Right. There's definitely pros and cons for all of the different options. And so it's good to hear a little bit about your experience. So what is it that you do now, now that that's kind of in your past? <laughs> yeah. So I'm a mother of two children and it's pretty hard to be an English teacher in a big chain school because you need to be at work in the evenings and on weekends, which is when most of the parenting duties happen. So yes, I sort of phased out my work as an English teacher. And at becoming a parent and being at home alone with two children in, well, not in Tokyo in Japan. So where I live in Fukushima is quite a small town. There are no other foreigners around me for a good couple of, in a good two or three kilometer radius at least. And yeah, I don't meet other foreigners on a daily basis here. So I was feeling very lonely as a mother of two small children and wondering what, where are other women like me, what are they doing and how do they feel about their life in Japan? So I went looking for a podcast I could listen to that would help me feel less alone and I couldn't find one. So if you can't find what you're looking for, you create it is my motto. So I created this podcast and that has been the sort of starting point of what I'm doing now, which is helping other people to start their podcasts, because there's a lot of things that need to happen to put out a podcast and it does trip people up, does stop them from doing what they want to do. And there's also a lot that needs to be done to maintain a podcast, almost as much as there is to get it going in the first place. So I help people who already have an established business to create a podcast that supports their business, but so that they don't have to actually do all the things themselves to keep the podcast going. And yeah, this was not something I expected to be doing. But two years ago, when COVID kicked off, podcasting really started to boom. And because I'd already been doing it for four years by then, a lot of women around me looked to, to me and said, help, <laughs> I want to do this thing you're doing, but I don't know how to do it. I'm already very busy with my successful business. Can you help me? Can you show me the shortcut? And someone said, can I pay you to do this? And I was like, me? Who, me? You're going to pay me to do this? What do I know? And nearly said no to my very first customer, actually. I was actually going to write back no. And I just thought, 
hang on a minute, you're, you are working from circumstances. So my circumstances at the time were that we were supposed to be living in Sweden, but our, my husband's company had sent us back to Japan. We were living in a temporary housing, which is very much like where you live right now, Showa era, no internet connection. And I had no way to do the work that someone was asking me to help them with. And then I thought, well, there are ways around this. So I went and used the Wi-Fi from Starbucks or 7-Eleven or whatever to get, uh, to get online to do the work I needed to do. And that was the start of my business as it is today. And we have more than 10 shows that we're managing at the moment. And yeah, launching more new shows every month and helping more and more women, especially to get their voice out there into the world. And if you look at podcasts in general, you'll see that women are underrepresented in podcasting. And anyone who says, who says, <laughs> needs to go and look harder because it's definitely uh, the case with less, fewer women podcasting, but more and more are starting to, and I want to encourage more women to do it and to get out there and give it a go and help people like change people's lives. Podcasts change people's lives, right? You would not believe some of the amazing stories that I've heard from people who've even just listened to my show and have made a choice that has changed their life trajectory. So yeah, I really want to help more people do that as well. Great. Podcasts are just such a great way to expose yourself to more ideas, more different ways of thinking. And because you're only listening, you can get more of that as opposed to having to sit down and read something. So it's much more accessible. I think I heard it expressed as like reclaimed time because you can do it while doing your other chores or going for a walk. So you're able to reclaim that time to develop yourself and to hopefully grow and learn something new. Exactly. And for a lot of women, especially, we don't have time to sit and watch a YouTube for 20 minutes or I, I even five minutes. I don't want to sit and watch a YouTube video, but while I'm doing a mundane task, like loading my washing machine or cooking dinner, I can be enjoying a conversation between two friends about something that I want to know about. That's, that's really great. So yes, definitely for all for the reclaimed time. So you mentioned that people ask you to help them build a podcast to support their business. What does that mean? One of the main reasons why you might want to start a podcast is to, yeah, support your business in as a marketing function and to help your potential customers get to know you, get to know, like, and trust you. So when you are launching your next product or, yeah, releasing your next book, creating a new course, whatever it is, maybe you have a coaching program. Maybe it's even that your, your company is looking for new talent, right, to hire. People can get to know you through your show and they'll be waiting for the chance to buy from you if, if they're a fan, right? So yeah, it really is a great way for people to get to know you and to market your business on your terms and yeah, grow your business that way and create a community around what you're doing. If it's a coaching program, there's a community around your, you know, people who are your clients or listen to your podcast. If it's a brand, there's a community of people who love your brand and they want to hear more from, from you. Right. One of the podcasts I listen to is actually someone who's been on my podcast as well, Catherine O'Connell. And the no like, and trust factor is definitely very strong with her podcast because it's hard not to like her exactly. <laughs> after listening to her podcast. Right. And I have to tell you, Catherine is one of our flagship podcasts on the, from Podlaunch with Jane. So thank you for mentioning Catherine in particular. We really enjoy working on her show, Lawyer on Air. It's a great show, even if you're not a lawyer, right? You can learn so much about career management and just, and things in general about Japan as well. Definitely. So what did it look like to build a business based on podcasting? Because it's a little bit of a newer area. So there are plenty of people who claim to have systems that they can sell you for nine 
payments of $9.99 or something like that. But how did you go about building a business that fits both your lifestyle and the medium of podcasting? What did that look like for you? So basically, I take away the pain points that people have around podcasting. And those are editing, for example. If you want to have a pristine audio that your listeners listen to, it can be a lot of work to to create that. The other pain points can be marketing your episode once it's out in the world. A lot of people don't bother to market their podcast and then wonder why (laughs) there's nobody listening. So those pain points, I, I knew what they were because I've been podcasting for a long time and avoiding them myself and then pushing myself to learn those skills. So now I know how to edit. I know how to market. I know how to create all the things around a podcast. And so I knew these, particularly these women clients who come to me who already have a successful business, don't have time for this, right? So taking away that pain point of, I can trust this person to do, uh, you know, look at what she's done for it. Loyonia, for example, they can look at Loyonia and go, oh, I want that for my podcast, but I don't want to do it myself. We can do that for you. And so after a while, it got to the point where I couldn't just do it by myself anymore where I'll be working all of the hours of the day. And that's not what I started this business for. I want this business to be something that allows me to stay home with my children. I'll be here for them when they come home from school, from their Japanese school environment and come home to an English environment in our home. And I'm here to, to, to be here for them after school. So I brought on, started to bring on team members, people who could help me with with that. And they're also women in different places around the world. And yeah, through, you know, working together with me on my business, their lives are changing as well. And I find that really motivating, almost as motivating as working with uh, my actual clients is working with my team and helping them to build the kind of life that they want to have where they live in the world, which tends to be around, you know, working flexible hours if they have small children or being able to work from anywhere because they want to be able to sit at a cafe and look out at the water while they're uh, writing (laughs) show notes or something, you know, whatever it is that they're doing. So let me just say, I did not have any idea I would be doing this a year ago. Like if we could go back to a year ago, I wouldn't have been able to predict just how far we've come in just one year. So it's very exciting. And I encourage people to just do something just take a step, give it a try, and you don't know where you'll end up. But trying to predict that, it's, it's almost a waste of energy. <laughs> just just do something, go out there and give it a go. Give it your best shot. Right. And it's easy to get very much in your head about trying new things and wondering if you'll fail. But if you fail, the result is that you've failed. There's nothing really after that, unless it's somehow something that you can get sued for, which probably be a little bit careful about in the first place but if you fail that's it you learn something new and you, you can move on something. it's not the yeah. end of the world <laughs> yeah well they say you're either going to get the result you want or the lesson you need right so if you fail you're going to get a lesson around something and yeah move that take that with you as you move forward yeah even though it's not that's not great right <laughs> it's not great to fail it's not but, fun but no it's not fun but there's always something to learn from that's for sure So what does it look like for you to build and maintain a team? Because you've said that they're all over the world. So I'm sure that managing a remote team or hiring a remote team has its own challenges. Yeah, so I probably didn't do the the best or the accepted way to hire people. I asked trusted people, do you know someone who can do these things? This is what I'm looking for. And very quickly, I found the people that I wanted. I'm always on the lookout for people in my community or yeah, around me who I think have the skills, but don't necessarily believe in themselves that they could be doing this. And uh, one of my team members is in New Zealand and she is the relative of a friend. And when I heard about her, I was like, introduce her to me now. And I got her on my team and yeah, she just needed a chance, right, to, to be able to, to, to start doing this kind of work. So it's been really, really fun to do that. Another person on my team, I knew them. They've been a guest on the show. 
when I heard about what they were doing, I was like, oh, please, I hope she can come and work for me at some time in the future. I'd really love to have her on the shows, uh, have her working on shows with me. And so, yeah, somehow that's worked out as well. And another team member who uh, does editing for me, I just heard that she'd been treated very badly by some other people she was working for. And I thought, well, maybe she can come and work for me and we'll let's not do that right so yeah somehow it just in that respect that all worked out as for having people around the world I decided that I didn't want to have everybody in Japan and the reason for that is look I experienced 311 uh when I say 311 I mean the triple disaster that happened here in Tohoku with the tsunami and uh, meltdown at the power station in my backyard, right? So if you're building a business and then something like that happens, how are you going to run your business if you're all in the one location? So my idea was that even if things go really badly here in Japan, my team members in the UK and New Zealand can pick up pick up the slack and somehow we'll we'll be okay. This this seemed like a really good idea. And it does work that we can all meet online we can get together at four o'clock in the afternoon in Japan we're all awake <laughs> across the world so yeah we we can meet online as well so yeah I think that was really important to me was was sort of having a people around the world so that that the business can continue no matter what happens here in Japan or what maybe something happens in New Zealand UK and Japan can pick up the slack that sort of thing definitely because as safe as Japan is in terms of violent crime and even petty crime, unfortunately, you are contending with severe weather or natural disasters or other things that you just might not expect in the Midwest of the United States, for example. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of a disaster prevention strategy mm-hmm. that, yeah, to consider. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. Are there any challenges that you've experienced? Well, you've said that you've kind of organically sourced your team, but with maintaining your team or managing your team remotely? I think I didn't realize exactly how much time it would take to to manage or to to keep them going, you know, how much of my time that requires. And so developing a system around that was a kind of a learning for me as well, that I need to make sure I have you know, assigned tasks or provided the the things by a certain time of the week or or something like that. Setting up those systems really helped me to start to manage the time that needs to happen for uh, for my team to be able to do what they need to do. Right, that that takes some of my time as well. Yeah, I didn't. I definitely did not calculate <laughs> that uh, very well when I was thinking about taking on team members. But that said, I think that. It's yeah, definitely the the benefits outweigh the sort of negative things. And having those people who are reliable and willing to try things and learn has been the most important for having team members, like noticing those aspects of people that they do what they say they're going to do when they say they're going to do it. And, or they let you know if they can't because something's happened, which happens in life. And we're all, you know, we will have children or taking care of children and things like that. So I understand that. And yeah, just making it work for all of us is really important. So what has been your experience kind of building your own life in Japan? You mentioned that you're the only foreigner as far as the eye can see in your particular yeah. context. So how have you built your life basically? And how have you built your identity? Because it's a little bit different than it would have been back home as one of the majority in the population as a native of New Zealand. And so how has it been kind of reconstructing that identity and also just figuring out how to make your life, make a life that works for you in a different country? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think anybody listening, wherever you are, even if you are living in your own country, has to make a choice, right? It's your choice to decide how you're going to live your life, wherever it is you are. And if you don't make those choices yourself, someone else will make them for you. And of course, I made that mistake of not making that choice myself 
for a long time. And also having small children, it's very easy to forget that you also have needs and wants and, and things uh, in your life as well. And I remember one day, my children were very small and we had already been through the triple disaster here. So I was still in Fukushima and I was sort of saying to my husband, I want to leave. I don't want to stay here. You know, everybody else is leaving. Why can't we leave too? <laughs> and he said, no, we're not done here. We have, we're staying. It's safe to be here. You know, scientifically it's safe to be here. Look, here's the numbers. And, and I realized that I was running away from Fukushima thinking that I would be happier in my home country in New Zealand. But there's that saying, wherever you go, there you are. Yeah, <laughs> you cannot run away from yourself. So I started to realize, okay, if I go to New Zealand, I'm probably not going to be any happier than I am here in Fukushima. So why don't I try to be happy here in Fukushima? And yeah, I committed to living in Fukushima. So I make a choice to live here and enjoy myself here. And so I thought, well, it's easy to be limited by what you perceive as the limitations of living in Japan, right? So I live in Japan, therefore I have to be an English teacher. Or this was certainly, you know, 10 years ago, this was certainly the thought process because we don't have the technology that we have today to make you could be a YouTuber or whatever you want to be right now. We have so much technology, but at that time it was not so much um, possible or it didn't seem possible. So around me, I thought I could only be an English teacher. And it's not necessarily the job that, I mean, I'm, I'm damn good English teachers, but it's not necessarily my best, you know, use of, of me as a, you know, as a person. So I decided to just rebuild my life bit by bit. So I started by removing things I didn't want to do from my calendar. And then something really amazing would come into that space. So for anyone who's in Japan or overseas and wanting to yeah, build a life that suits you, it starts by looking at what you're doing now and not doing the things that don't bring you joy if you can. And a lot of people say, but I have to. And I would say, well, really? Do you actually have to? Could somebody else do that for you? Does it have to be you? And start there and start by removing one thing that you don't, that doesn't bring you joy, that you hate doing, that you dread. Get that off your calendar and see the huge change that will make to your life. So that's what I started to do. And I just repeated that process over and over again and decided that I needed to do things that I liked. Yeah. Because I realized there was nothing on my calendar that was just for me. And so I started doing more things for me and following my sort of interests and thinking, well, what do I like to do? What would happen if I attempted to make a job around that, make that my work, even though I live outside of Tokyo and there aren't the opportunity for foreigners here that there are, potentially in, in big cities and things. So that's how it all started. And it's still a work in progress, still very much work in progress. Obviously with COVID, it has yeah, sort of changed how I live my life. I live my life a lot more online now than I did before. And that's been kind of good in that I wasn't able to always be in Tokyo for various gatherings or, you know, going to workshops or whatever, because things would be held in person. And I'm two and a half hours away by fast train. But now a lot of things are online. So I feel like I can join in a lot more things in the foreign community in Japan. And so in that respect, I'm also a lot happier. You know, I can be part of things I don't need to be in Tokyo for. So that's really great as well. That's sort of, you know, I think we have to always keep changing as, and because we change as people, right? As we, as we grow, as we learn new things, keep changing. What does it look like for me to enjoy my life in Japan today? Yeah. Given where we are with COVID at the moment. So yeah. Yeah. Change is the only constant, right? <laughs> yep. Yeah. So you, you just got to keep changing, but yeah, just keep your eye on it. Like, yeah. Okay. That's not, not floating my boat anymore. Okay. Well, what would float my boat? then? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So are there any things in particular that you can point to 
when it comes to ways that you think Japan specifically has changed you as a person? Oh, that's hard to know because I think Japan has kind of raised me as in I arrived off the plane at 22 and I've been here almost my whole adult life and I'm getting to the point where I will have lived in Japan almost, you know, as long as I lived in my own country. So kind of, I feel like Japan has raised me as an adult, whereas because I've spent all my time here as, as, as a sort of a functional adult, or, I guess I am much more aware of how my actions affect other people. And that is thanks to living here. Whereas I think if I had not lived here, I would be very sort of, yeah, only think about myself. Yeah, I want to do this, so I will do that and not consider how that affects people around me. Whereas in Japan, that is the main concern or the first thing that people will think about when deciding something. If I do this, then this is going to affect the people around me this way or, or something like that. That thought process has become sort of part of me from living in Japan. And from people, for people outside of Japan, you might be like, well, why, why would you do that? You don't have to think about, worry about other people. Well, you do. <laughs> if you live in Japan, you will have to think about that more. You will have heard people talking about how community-minded Japanese people are or how group-oriented people are in Japan. And if you put down roots in Japan and like I have with building a house and having my own home in a neighborhood, then you will have to think about how your actions affect the people who live around you. Recently, my daughter started playing the violin and my thought was, oh my God, how many gifts am I going to have to buy for my neighbors to sort of say, very sorry, but you know, they probably won't complain or, you know, throw rocks at our house or anything like that, but to be conscientious and, you know, get in front of it and say, my daughter is taking up the violin and we hope it won't be too much problem sort of thing you have to consider those things Uh, getting a dog even like in another country we would not consider whether you should get a dog or not as in how that relates to your neighbors but in japan you will see that oh okay there are no dogs in this neighborhood if i get a dog i'm probably gonna be like the most hated member of this neighborhood if I get a dog. But if you get a dog and you're in, all of your neighbors have dogs, it's totally fine because everybody already has a dog and nobody will complain about your dog. <laughs> so yeah, this sort of things, considering how your actions affect people around you is definitely something I've developed over the years here. Not perfectly, that's for sure. I still get it wrong all the time. But yeah, so <laughs> that muscle is a lot stronger than it was before, that's for sure. It is a balance that you have to consider. There will be consequences uh, to your decisions, basically. Exactly. So you can and should stand up for the things that really matter to you. But the small things, maybe it's worth reconsidering whether you actually need it or not. So what has been your experience raising a family in Japan, in rural Japan? Wow. Yeah. Huge topic, that one. I found it to be really great, actually. I was surprised at just how much more welcome I felt once I became a parent when I was just me a lone foreign woman wandering around my neighborhood people were quite standoffish then I got a dog and people were a lot more friendlier to me because I had a dog and there was something to talk about it was sort of like a conversation starter and then I had children and just so many people would come and chat to me, say, hi, how old are your children? And made me feel part of the community. We are so well taken care of in this neighborhood. My children, everybody is watching out for my children and making sure they're safe, giving them snacks and candies. You know, like when they were little, we would walk our dog around the neighborhood every day and we'd have these certain houses where the the elderly people there would be in the garden, they would say, come into our garden, have morning tea with us. Or here's some daikon radishes we've just picked. Here, yeah, here, take two with you. Very rarely we would make it around our walk without coming home with something. We've made so many friends in our neighborhood through that. Just recently, we were wandering down the, on the, down the road and this woman was chasing us and, and saying, hello, hello, 
And we were like, oh, what, what's wrong? You know, if we drop something or, and she was like, I have been watching your family walk past my house for the last 10 years. And I've wanted to come out and say hello. And I've never had a chance, but I saw, I haven't seen you for a long time. And then I saw you again today. So I just had to come out and say hello. And I was like, wow. Um, you might think that's a bit stalkery, but that, you know, like I knew you know, her house. I was, you know, walked past her house every day for years. And then she said, would you like some haksai, which is Chinese cabbage? And we were like, of course you have to say yes, right? You can't just say, no, we don't want your Chinese cabbage. <laughs> of course you have to say yes. So she goes, oh, your husband better come because it's quite heavy. And so she gave us this, it was like a five kilo haksai, massive massive like bigger than my head cabbage and we had to carry it all the way home for the rest of our walk I had to take turns it was so heavy um once the stuff like that happens here and I just I just really can't imagine that happening uh, back home where I'm from so much so yes I feel very taken care of by my community here that we've you know we've we've stayed in the same house for the last 10 years and all of that really helps and yeah, when you do decide to put down roots into the community in somewhere, I think you can be really rewarded with some really nice relationships as well. So are there any things that you would like people to know who may be considering raising a family in Japan? I mean, it does depend on sort of who you're raising the family with like if you're you're two foreigners doing it or one Japanese partner and one not Japanese partner in my case my husband is Japanese so we did have quite a considerable uh, difference in the way that we were raised ourselves and our assumptions about how our children would be raised but it was quite obvious to us that there were those huge differences so we did discuss things and Perhaps if you were maybe two Americans, you might not, and then clash, right? Because you would just assume, well, you know, you're American, I'm American, of course, we're going to do X with our child. So it is a great way to have uh, communication around how you're going to raise your child. Are you going to do it the Japanese way? Are you going to do it the New Zealand way? Or are you going to do it a hybrid? Which is what we did. And we just took the best parts of New Zealand culture. We took the best parts of Japanese culture, mashed it all together, chose what we wanted, and didn't feel guilty about it. And a lot of people sort of said, oh, do you sleep with your child? Does your child sleep on a futon? Or does your child sleep in a cot? And, and why did you decide that? And well, you know, we decided X because that suits us. So I always just tell other parents who are at the start of their parenting journey in Japan, is just to choose what works for you and go with it. And don't let anyone tell you how to do it otherwise. So a lot of Japanese parents will ask me, oh, how does, how is it that your children go to bed at 7.30, for example? And I always say, well, that's because I choose that they go to bed at 7.30. <laughs> and to them, that sounded just like crazy talk. Uh, but when I explained how I actually make that happen, they were like, wow, so I have to choose that they will go to bed at 7.30 and make our schedule work like that so yeah it, it's up to you how you decide to do it and that's okay yeah so maybe in a more professional context do you have any examples of communication breakdowns due to differences in culture that you can think of so I have worked in as I mentioned before those big English schools and often ended up being as being a Japanese teacher being the the go-between between Japanese uh, managers or owners of the school and then the foreign workers who are kind of off, fresh off the plane and and don't know much about Japanese culture and are there for that reason they're here to teach their culture to you know or give Japanese people the experience of interacting with people who don't know that much about Japan and yeah so having that that, that sort of being in that midpoint between the two two camps, yeah, the, the Japanese side and the, the foreigner side and having sort of 20 years of experience in Japan. I can see now both sides of the conversation, but I too once was on the fresh off the plane side and was very much just thinking about myself and me, myself and I, <laughs> and I want to take a holiday next weekend because I want to go to Tokyo because I want to see my friends. Whereas 
the Japanese side would be our students are our number one priority and we always put them first and we are not going to give you a day off <laughs> to go to Tokyo because XYZ, you know, something that has nothing to do with you and wanting to see your friend and all of that. So yeah, navigating that, that sort of assumption that, that me, myself and I is the most important versus that group orientation on the other side has been probably one of the, the trickiest things and then helping foreigners to get to see that, oh, actually, it's not all about you is, is really quite tricky at the start. But yeah, you do get the hang of it, even though it can be very frustrating to go through that process of realizing that you are not the center of the world. <laughs> Especially since a lot of those people, if they're young and maybe it's their first job, not, not in every instance, but that it tends to trend to the younger, less experienced group. So in general, there's just a larger learning curve, but then there's also having Japanese expectations on top of it that makes yeah. it even steeper. <laughs> and some some people don't realize that they're working in a Japanese company when they are working in these big Aikawa firms and that you do have to consider other people. And I and I'll just tell you one quick story and it's just so silly and funny that and when now that I think about it it's like how did that even happen but sometimes students would bring us souvenirs when they've been on trips, right? And the Japanese staff would always make sure that everyone got one cookie or one biscuit or, you know, whatever it was, one that everyone got to try something. But sometimes they didn't have a chance to do that because they were busy or whatever. And sometimes this like big tray of shoe creams that we're talking, so like pastries with cream in the middle would end up in our teacher's room. And some teachers would just eat two or three because they were like, oh, these are delicious. I'll have another one without even considering whether there was enough to go around for everyone and at the time I didn't think there was a problem but now looking back on that I'm like I cannot believe that people did that that's so rude but if you, it was sort of just a more like well you're not here so you know and I'm hungry and <laughs> and here's some sugar cream so I'm going to eat them there's no consideration for is there enough for everyone did everyone get get one but there's that's that's just one example of how important it is that everybody is sort of taken care of and everybody gets the same treatment in Japan. Right. Definitely. It's such a small thing, but it's such a fundamental one, just making yeah. that shift in how you look at yeah. things and how you look yeah. at situations. Yeah. Or like if you're at a dinner party and you take three pieces of karage, that's such a no, no, right? Like you've got to make sure everybody gets a piece of karage. <laughs> exactly. And then you go out to eat with Americans and you're like, what are you doing? Why are you taking yeah, literally yeah. everything? Yeah, like just because you like karage. <laughs> Pace yourself. Everybody needs some. Hmm. So if you were chatting with somebody who is going to Japan to work or for business and they really only had time to learn one thing from you about the culture ahead of time, what would you choose? So of course I wanted to say about the the high thing, like if people in Japan are saying hi hi, like, yes, it doesn't necessarily mean yes. It means I'm listening to you, but apparently that's been, a, that's happened a couple of times on the show already. So I had to come up with something else. And uh, the one that, the other one that I, that I was thinking about was about how you dress. And I would really encourage anyone who's coming to Japan to research what is going to be the appropriate way to dress while I'm in Japan. And you will probably find that it's quite different to what you are expecting especially women you may struggle to find clothes in your own country that are what was the word uh, conservative conservative enough for japan and i definitely noticed this uh, myself coming to japan that the level of conservativeness of how women dress in business especially is really quite quite sort of shocking it's like hello it's 2022 but there are a lot of kind of unspoken rules as to how women dress and you might be sort of thinking well screw that I want to dress how I want to dress and you know all of that but this is another way of this is another example of well sure you can go ahead and do that if you want to but there will be kind of consequences and that will be that People won't look you in the eye like they'll be fixated on your chest or people will 
avoid you because they're scared to talk to you because they don't understand who you are. And if you dress in a certain way, they will understand, okay, she's here and she means business. Whereas if you dress in another way, they're like, is this, who's this? Are they like a comedian or a, like or a movie star? Like, I don't, I don't get it. Um, they won't know how to deal with you if you're not wearing the right uniform, whether it's a, a proper uniform or an informal uniform. And if you're uh, a parent in Japan, there's the parent, there's the mum uniform. Yeah, there's everybody has a uniform in this country of some some sort. So yeah, I'd really encourage you to to sort of do some research and find out what that might be, and how that's different to what you were expecting. Right, you can definitely pick and choose what rules you want to follow, but you need to be aware of the rules. <laughs> Yeah, and make yeah. those decisions with that knowledge instead and of for guys as well right you know you perhaps in your own country it's okay to wear chinos and uh, foot, uh like a, a rugby shirt we call it in new zealand like you know some sort of sports wear or whatever but it's not appropriate in japan nobody will take you seriously if you show up dressed like that or with scraggly hair or whatever it is so, yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense so thank you so much for sharing your time today. Is there anything we didn't get to touch on? Anything you wish I'd asked you or anything you'd like to make sure my audience is aware of before we sign off for today? If you want to learn more about what it's like to live in Japan, definitely come over and check out the Transformations with Jane podcast, where we have a lot of women who have lived in Japan for a long time, who are making their best lives happen here in Japan, doing lots of different things that can really show you some of the potential that there is for people living in Japan. You don't just have to be an English teacher if you don't want to. You know, you can do loads of other things these days and you can have a very happy life here as well. Great. So to learn more, just check out the links in the description of the episode to find a link to her podcast. And with that, we'll just sign off. Thank you. Thank you. I hope that you enjoyed today's conversation. If you would like to learn more about Jane, her podcast, or the services offered by Podlaunch with Jane, be sure to check out all of her links in the description of this episode. If you enjoyed today's episode, go ahead and share it with a friend, colleague, or connection on LinkedIn to help spread the perspectives and information shared in the podcast. And please remember to go ahead and subscribe or follow on whatever platform you're using, and also leave a rating and review if you enjoy the podcast. If you would like to support the podcast, please check out my link to the new coffee page to keep me well caffeinated and making content. As always, feel free to email me at businesssuccessjapan at gmail.com if you have any other questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes or interview topics. I'd love to hear from you directly, so if you would like to leave a voice message, you can find a link to do that in the description as well. But for now, remember that the more you learn, the more confident you will become as you explore all of the opportunities Japan has to offer you. Until next time, mata kondo. Thank you.